Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Lusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Said it's about money, PK. The person says, "What's the balance to making money and not serving mammon? And how do I charge more money for my services as a Christian without feeling like?" I should be giving discount or just not charging too much since it's for the gospel. I work mostly for Christian clients most comfortable doing secular jobs. So that's one. So the second question around money is well, that first one is by who? It's an anonymous question. <laughs> and the second one, but I feel like maybe because it's money related, people are like, I don't want to seem like I like money. So let me not just add my name or something. But honestly, I truly believe that it's best when you put your names to question so we can find out if you get answers i mean people here that left their names they are going to, we're going to be able to reach out to say oh was this answer clear was this good or do you need more clarity but then we understand but we would prefer if you kindly put your name to your questions all right so the second money question because i would like to just give you both of them at the same time so it says I'm currently in a fix. I'm not yet earning as much money as I would require to sustain myself and help out with upkeep for my parents. Currently, after doing my budget for the month, I realize it's almost like I have to choose between giving my tithe and saving for the future. I understand that God is my source and He will always be, but then it seems irrational to not have savings. I know it's just a phase because with time I would earn more. But how do I navigate this season of my life? This is also anonymous. Yes. <laughs> Money questions. And money must. Money because it's money matters. Yeah. Okay. So. So okay, yeah. So the first person to be clear, um, once is a works with Christian creatives, mm -hmm. wants to earn more money, mm -hmm. but doesn't know how to charge mm -hmm. for that, right? Yes. Um, then same thing with that question. Not at all. Okay. Straight on. See ya. <laughs> to be fair. Right. I know that many times we want to help Christian creatives um, and we don't. It's, it's, it's somehow a contribution for the cause of the gospel. But here's the thing. I'd rather that your contribution to the gospel be voluntary versus be something you just accept. Mm -hmm. So I'll explain. If someone wants to charge you, uh, maybe someone wants your, your service to do like a music video, you're a cinematographer, and they want you to do a music video for them because they sing Christian songs. If you now say, ah, this is for the gospel, instead of charging you maybe industry rates, I mean, if you know what they charge for all these mainstream songs, sometimes it can be as high as one millionaire or two millionaire. Just, I'm just saying, for just cinematography alone. Yeah. So the budget is high. If you now say, ah, let me just do 20,000 naira because it's for the gospel after all. That is more of an acceptance than a, a, a proactive contribution. I'd rather you say, okay, this is what I want to collect. I want to collect 200,000 Naira for this, right? Because I know the amount of work I'm going to put in, the amount of hours I'll put into this. And then I would make sure from that, out of my willful, cheerful giving, mm -hmm. I will give towards this cause because I believe in it. So yeah, voluntarily giving rather than just accepting something as you're changing yourself because eventually you're affecting your brand mm. you're affecting your reputation next time uh, who shot this your video man this thing is mad 
guy, do you even know that I spent just 20k on this video? Eh? Send okay. me your guy, send me your guy. Immediately, you are you look cheap, you look uh, easily affordable, and it's not the best. When Apple does their, you, I hope you know Apple, when they release their products, their profit margin is really high. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it was the iPhone 11, right? The cost to make it was around $100 plus, if I'm not mistaken, wow. to make all the hardware and stuff. The software, you just duplicate it, it's mm -hmm. already made across. But to make the hardware was between 100 to 200 and they were selling it for 400 500 dollars that's a huge margin so it, it's all about perception and, and when you see that amount when you, when you see iphone someone has iphone it just gives you this mm. oh, you have an iphone do you get branding is important i know when it comes to family and friends you might want to give a discount which mm -hmm. is which is good i think i think it's fine but when it comes to professional services it's not see <laughs> Your competition is not just with it's not even within the Christian circle, it's mm -hmm. outside. Yeah. So if you want to be reckoned with on that same level, you need to put yourself on that level where people can say, Oh, this is someone who has value for their services. Do you understand? So that's what I would recommend. Don't be sentimental about put out your rates, you can negotiate with that. Go high, as high as possible, as you think is reasonable, not unrealistically high. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then yeah. just go within a certain range, industry range, and something you think is worth your time, worth all the efforts, and then you can have negotiations happen. On the second one, which is um, someone who's trying to save money, but at the same time give their tithe or their um, contributions to the gospel, and then they're finding it hard. They have to. They're not earning so much that they have to now think. About should I even give tithe to this woman? I, trust me, I know what that's like. I have been in that situation before. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I have. But the principle is this: God loves a cheerful giver. All right, are you with me? God loves a cheerful giver. If it's under compulsion, if it inspires anxiety, if it inspires pressure, mm -hmm. it is really not from God. God will not ask you to do that. Um, is the, are there places for sacrifice? Absolutely. But at the same time, God wants you to do it cheerfully. Like, this is what I want to give. And this is how, and this is not for someone who is irresponsible with their finances. Mm -hmm. Someone who actually loves the gospel, loves the kingdom. Right. So in a case like that, I would ask you to do your calculations again. How much, I'll use an example now. So in this economy, living off on 30,000 naira, it's not, it's not. <laughs> Not the easiest. <laughs> it's not. All right. Thirty thousand naira is not the easiest. And then you after thirty thousand, your type ten percent is three thousand naira, right? When you subtract that, you have twenty-seven thousand naira. Then you want to say you save how much? Ten k. Now see, let me save ten k at least. Yeah. What are you left with? Seventeen. You're going to office Monday. You're going to Friday. office Monday. <laughs> Island to mainland. Island to mainland. Sir. It's not feasible. So in a place like that, right, to be fair, be consistent in your giving. That's what I would encourage you to do because once you start to slack there, even when you have more, the temptation to keep slacking will, will be there. Mm -hmm. So even if it's not up to 10%, hear me out, just make sure you give. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? Um, God, as God wants us, as much as we are generous, to also be wise mm -hmm. and be able to take care of ourselves. Right, and if that's um, 
you you go below that, you can also cut down your savings. Like, okay, you don't have to save up to ten thousand. Save an amount, but save. Mm. So you can just just have an idea of what your expenses are in a particular month, mm. and then make sure that you have enough for that mm. uh, before anything else. Do you understand? I know it sounds like it's a reverse thing, but it depends on uh, where you are per time in in your life. But those contributions, those savings need to be constant, but there's no instruction, the new covenant that says it has to be a particular percentage or else it's God does not receive it. It's all about proportion. Yeah. When the widow gave her widow's light, he said he gave more than the, the person it was proportional, it wasn't in terms of the amount, it was from what you could afford to give, mm. do you understand? So that's that's my, that there's a wisdom place of wisdom. I said the Lord directly instructs you to give a certain amount. Um, I found that, that the Lord does that because, you know, and I was going to say this to some of you, but in a phase where we are raising money, right, or that I'm putting this in quotes, we're raising money for church. But actually what we're actually doing is releasing money, not raising it. When, yeah. when, when the Lord tells us to give for a particular cause and leads us, he has, it's the same principle of the five loaves and two fishes. How can five loaves and two fishes feed 5,000 people? It's logical. But when the Lord says, those five loaves, those two fishes, fishes, I said fishes, fishes, bring, bring them um, to me, and he multiplies them. Mm. So he, he, you might have a budget of 5 million, but this person brings 100k, this person brings 200k, but somehow, supernaturally, you make the 5 million. Mm. Because we're not raising, we're releasing. Mm. So when the Lord asks you, to give a certain amount please obey he has a reason for that but if there's no specific instruction give what you are able to give mm. that's what i would say yeah thank you so much yeah. okay those answers were really really spot on i think it hits me the one for the christian creative yeah because sometimes it's that um that i say temptation to be like ah it's for the lord yeah build them they have money. It's your brand. It's your brand. And even this one about savings and then putting the money, because in the end, it's really not about oh how much you're giving. You always get him and say, God says, ah, you give 1,000 and I come this way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I, we're just going to take one live question. And I can see your last hand up. Um, okay, so if you'd like to speak, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing at his comments. Yeah, um, if you'd like to speak, please unmute yourself and ask your question. Thank you very much. Okay, as a Jesus hand is also up. Now we have three hands up. I'm going to call Ayola one last time. If she doesn't speak, the seven person to raise their hand up was actually as a chisholm. So we'll go with her question. But Ayola, are you with us? Are you ready to ask your question? Okay. So, so it seems like she's not with us, sadly. So Pastor Chisholm, please go ahead with your question. We have seven persons to raise their hand up. All right. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. All right. Hi, PK. Um, so my question is actually from Lamentations. Right. I know the book was a very 
lamentful that's the word book right um and I, I, I was just thinking about it like my question just borders around the earlier verses of lamentations three in later verses where he then goes on to say because of god's love we are not consumed and then we are new every morning yeah, they had that. I know in context it was because of the children of Israel rebelling against God, and that's why they went through all of that. But Jeremiah himself that wrote that um, scripture, like his words at the beginning were very strong, almost saying that God had like turned his back against him personally, like Jeremiah personally, right? I know that it may, many of those things may be metaphoric, but like I just want you to speak to it in light of like the believer's life today okay um thank you for the question i think so i mean jeremiah's story is, is a very fulfilling story in terms like this guy fulfilled purpose yeah. i do believe that but his journey to fulfilling purpose was a messy situation and Jesus said and accused the people that you people killed your prophets. And Paul said the same thing. And Peter repeats the same thing. I'm so sorry. Please, could you come again? I didn't I didn't hear for a long time. Sorry? I'm so sorry. Please, could you come again? I didn't hear you for a long time. Please, could you come again? I'm so sorry. Okay. Let me just check. That is not just... That is just you that, that happens. Can you guys hear me? Friend Mike also This is how I don't. Um, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay. Okay, perfect. Okay, so yeah, I was saying that Jeremiah's life was a purposeful life, but also was a difficult life. This was someone that was, I mean, for a long time, was shying away from being a prophet. And the Lord tells him, look, before you are formed, I already ordained you to be a prophet. Don't say that you are young. Don't say that you are small. I will use you in your way. So he was a purposeful person from from when he was very young. But you see that when Jesus warns the Israelites, he tells them that you people dismissed your prophets. Paul and Peter said, you people killed your prophets. And this same way you killed the prophets, you killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. With Jeremiah's story, when you read it, it makes sense that he should talk like it. <laughs> It makes sense that you should have, in fact, I feel David should have had his own lamentations, even though a lot of it is in Psalms. I feel it's Isaiah should have had his own book on lamentations because this is Isaiah who was sawn in half. He was killed by the people he was called to serve. Jeremiah was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was mocked, he was ridiculed. This was the person that was trying to help them remember God's promises even while they were in exile. So. He did have a hard knock life, if, if I'll use Annie's um, phrase. He had a terrible, terrible life, a life of persecution. And if you're going to relate that to the Christian world now, it's a case of, look, we will suffer persecution. And it might not be as grand as them slapping or beating or sawing you into half. It might even be from amongst the people you are called to serve. Like, you've been called to be a prophet to the nations. And the nations can despise you. Being called to encourage the people God has given over your care, and they spit you in the face. 
it can happen and it does happen. As a minister of the gospel, it's, it's almost inherent that I protect myself, um, or let me not say protect myself, prepare myself for such persecution from amongst my people and from those outside. People will drag on Twitter, people in the church will not understand, and out of immaturity speak out. Do you understand? So it's something to prepare, even within the sphere, as a leader, as someone who's called to be a prophet for white people. Um, but there's always a reward in doing the work and focusing on the mission. And this is what God called me to do. It's difficult, this is not something. And the way that the prophets speak, it's like Jonah's kind of speech. I hope you know. You people repent or you die. <laughs> it's repent now or God will wipe you out. And Jonah did not like them, you could tell. The fact that he ran away and then the way he presented the message. Even half of, it's not even full verse, so the one who was half a verse said, Repent or God will pour. Destroy all of you. But God in his mercy somehow they were convicted and they repented. So the messages they brought many times were like prophecies of doom. Turn away, turn or burn kind of prophecies. So people don't like that. And so they would they would rise up. And sometimes in, in the Christian world, you might say some things that we might not like, but it's God's word. So people might react, people can say, I'm leaving the church. I'm done with you. I trusted you as a man of God or a woman of God, but you are, you are, it's clear you are saying rubbish. And that kind of persecution can arise. But instead of, and, and see, to be fair, I think lamentations is something we should be allowed to do as Christians. We are allowed to lament. We are allowed to talk and tell God how we feel. But of course, not with a helpless approach to it, but lamenting with hope in view that God hears you and God will bring you out of that situation. Well, like David, you are distressed, but you can encourage yourself in the Lord. Even though sometimes you say, Lord, I, I feel dogs have encompassed about me. They've pierced my hands. They've, you know, all of that. Even amidst those um, lamentations to keep hope in you. I think that's how we can respond to that even now. Sufferings of now, a lot to be compared to the glory to be revealed. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much, PK. Pisom, does that answer your question? Hey. Network kicked me out for a good bit, but like I, I, I got the summary of it. I'll re listen to the recording. Right. Thank you. Okay, so now we'll be going back to Slido. <laughs> I'm not anyone that mentioned the place with the questions. So, why did you do all this at the beginning? Why everyone said, okay, Slido? Slido, in it. All right, so I'm going to take Grace's question. It says, please, can you explain the old covenant as opposed to the new? Was the old covenant the laws written on the tablets of stone? This is who? Grace? Grace, yes. Old covenant, is it covenant you used or testament? Yes. covenant. Okay, okay, almost are the same thing. Um, the old covenant was the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants according to the flesh. The new covenant is the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants according to the Spirit. Simple. All right. Okay, so I was here. I think um, I would like to bring up the tablets of stone. Tablets of stone. Because 
of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah. It's because I think on Sunday you sort of made yeah. mention that okay. Ten Commandments sort of still apply. Absolutely, they do. God and people. They absolutely do. So, so yeah. So I'm just establishing the baseline yeah. understanding. Old Testament, Old Covenant, ideally, is a covenant God established with Abraham and his descendants, the promise he made to them, um, while they were still governed by the law. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. The new covenant is a covenant he made to Abraham and his descendants still, but according to the Spirit, those who, like Galatians 3 says, by the, like the faith of Abraham would believe God and to be counted unto them as righteousness. So that's that's the major difference. But within the old covenant, the, the law written on tablets of stone was delivered onto Moses, right? Um, and that law was this is God's ultimate law. And in many ways, these guys already had it in their conscience to regulate them. They knew right from wrong. But now they will be held accountable because the law has been given. If if someone do you get like if someone in the house, for example, you have children in the house. And you never told the child that they should not touch something, maybe like a vase or something, and they touched it. Why are you punishing them for something they did not know was an offense? Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if they knew it, there was no law saying that you should not. So they cannot be held. You can't, you can't prove, right? you know, present it in the court of law. So same reason, the law was to bring accountability to all men, but also to reflect God's heart of love. Because, like I say, the first four parts of it talk about our love for the Lord. If you love the Lord, you will take no um, other God before, have no other God before Him. You will not make any graven image to serve it. You will not take His name in vain. And that's that's both literally and also by your character. You don't drag His name into the by the way you live. And the fourth thing is to keep the Sabbath day holy, the day consecrated for the worship of the Lord keep it holy and sacred. So that shows your love for the Lord. And the remaining six, honor your father and your mother, don't commit adultery, uh, <clears throat> don't commit murder, don't bear false witness against your neighbor and the likes. These are things that govern your love for others. So love your, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the law of love. So that has not changed. What changed with the law, which is not the entirety of the covenant, by the way, the law, what changed with the law, the moral law, let me call it, or the Ten Commandments, was the difference between the old and new is that it was trans, just translocated. It was, it was now taken from tablets of stone and put it in the heart. So that's what that's what happened, you understand? But the moral law was not the entirety of the old covenant. It was what was given them, but more or less, you have the ceremonial laws, the civil laws that governed Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. But now we are the Israelites of God by the Spirit. We are God's chosen people, His holy nation. And so now it's not just laws on tablets of stone, it's the law upon our hearts by the Spirit. So we have the Spirit of love. We can love God and we can love people now. So that's that's the difference. All right, thank you so much, Peter. That's like a much needed and necessary explanation because now it's just adds up a bit more yeah. so grace i hope that's not just for me grace, let us then, know yeah. if your and your question was answered correctly sorry try to check even if you meant so thank you pk i'm guessing we're good thumbs up 
All right. So we're going to take another Slido question. Yeah, it's a Slido. <laughs> and this one is from Dami. So she says, why? It's your typing. Why is it easier to have faith for specific things than it is for others? No, they aren't more important things than the ones than the ones that are easier to have faith for. That's a question. I think I get what she's saying, but you have to say it again. So I'm okay. sure. Dami, so, yes, Dami, Dami, please help. Um, give me give a bit more clarity for your question in the chat section. We said, why is it easier to have faith for specific things than it is for others? No, they are not more important things than the ones that are in there. So okay. I'm guessing that this is a list of different things to have faith for. It's easier to have more faith for some things than others. Yeah. Those things are not more important than things mm -hmm. that Makes sense. you can't have faith easily. I get you. I think I get the question. So to be fair, um, if it's not a matter of of importance or priority of the needs that you have faith for. That's more about the places in your life where you probably don't trust God enough. And it could be based on your experiences, based on your exposure. Um, I'll give you an example. So relationships, money, finances, which is more important? Depends on the person. Depends. And they might both be equally important. You want to settle down and you want to be settled. <laughs> right? So it, both are important, but maybe like in your life, you've always somehow seen God come through for your finances. You, you, so even if you drink Gary, at least you will drink something. God shows up. But in your relationship, in one year, you had five relationships that ended badly. Only you, five, maybe even seven, perfection. You 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 you've seen shake upon shake the heart is there's not no, nothing left of the heart. Guess what? Both things are important, but in this one you've had a bad experience. Maybe you've had some exposure that you shouldn't have had, and now you're asking God, Lord, settle me. But somewhere in your mind you're like, what about past relationships? What about these people? It's not sure that I always make the wrong decisions. So I think it's more about the places where You've been hurt the most, exposed the most, or have had negative connotations, either personally or from other people's experiences, and that limits the ability to trust God in those aspects of your life. So I think it's more about experience, exposure, and your encounters versus the level of importance of that thing. That, mm -hmm. that is, that's how I see it, unless there's more to that question. All right, thank you, Piki. I think personally, I have seen, I can key picture in my head oh yeah this actually hits home a lot yeah. Yeah, but sadly i just noticed that Dami isn't online so we can't tell okay. if but hopefully she will watch the replay and if she has more questions she can reach out to you um, but grace's comment was that she's still not sure what the old covenant is but she understands in part <laughs> understand in part you know in part you shall see in full very soon amen you see, <laughs> when it comes to the old covenant, it started with a man called Abraham. The old covenant was just a stepping stone for the new. It was a premise for the new. It was the the what comes prologue is before I mean, the epilogue yes. is after. It was the prologue for the story. I mean, there was a prologue, there was a story, and there's an epilogue. 
right, which is where the new covenant comes in. So God gave an announcement to Abraham, the person he started this covenant with, out of his his election and his fruit and, and the glory of his will. I want to choose a man who's old in age and advanced in age at 75. I'm not going to use a young guy, I'll use an old guy. And you will be the start, the starting point of this covenant. That through your descendants and through your seed, all nations of the earth will be what? Be blessed. Thank God for revelation. Galatians now tells us that the reason why God made that covenant with Abraham and his descendants was so that all nations will be blessed. And that's where the new covenant came through Christ and the advent of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So it's one covenant that started with Abraham and was fulfilled through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. So read Galatians 3, you understand that concept. So there were a set of laws that applied within Abraham's tenure and dispensation. But when the promised Messiah came on the scene, he led a new dispensation. Does that make sense? Right. So people even argue and date the covenant back to Genesis 3.15, where, you know, the serpent will, will hurt him, right? And bruise his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. That was a prophetic word of what the Messiah would do. But the covenant was established with Abraham and his descendants, clearly. If some people will argue that oh, every descendant came from Adam in the first place, so that's the covenant. But anyways, um, I, I can pinpoint that it was through Abraham that the blessing would come to all people, which is the promise of the Spirit. Right, yeah. Thank you so much, Vicky. So she gets it now. Yay! All right. So, um, Brianna has the live question. So we've done two. Yes, we've done two. Two slide questions, and now we're going to the live question. And Brianna's hand has been up from earlier. So, Brianna, please go ahead and ask your question. Thank you. Happy belated birthday, by the way. Thank you, PK. Hi, everyone. Hello. Good, good, um, good day. Because <laughs> I don't know the time. Uh, so, please, I have a question on Romans chapter 9. Yeah. So, um, I think it was the verse where, like, the whole of Romans chapter 9 was talking about how some people were destined to go. Let me pull up my Bible so that I'll look the way it was. So, so, I was just very lost. Because I know Pharaoh hardened his heart, then um, God then hardened his heart or something like that. So I wasn't really understanding the concept then about like the. Hold on, sorry. Let me get up so that I know how to explain it. Because um, there was one part where Paul was like, if people were already destined to go against God's laws, why is it that? God is now finding, paraphrasing, like, why is he now wrong if someone was already destined to break the law? I don't know if I'm explaining this thing real sad. But it, the whole thing that I didn't understand, I think it first started from, like, um, where God was like, I have loved Esau, I have hated Jacob. Then, um, where God was also then um, picking, was he Abraham? Where God picked Isaac, then yeah. that verse where God was like, I'll show mercy to who? I'll show mercy I'll to. Be Basically be saying, I've picked this person. Yeah. Yeah? Hmm? 
Okay. So, can you summarize your question now? So, my question is basically, is it, I don't really understand if God was determining who he was going to save in this particular chapter. I got you. I got mm -hmm. you. So, thanks for the question. It's something I cannot in full um, dismantle here. Um, I think I must have done, I cannot be have done for you. It's probably verse talked about Cal yeah. Calvinism and, and all of that. So, Calvinism is maybe that's where you're getting the idea. They are, they are a sect in Christianity. For a while, I was, I was like, oh, I don't even want to call them. And some of them genuinely love the Lord. A lot of them actually do, and are truly saved, I believe. Um, but their view of God is super different from what scriptures portray. They, they portray a selective God. They portray um, a God who chooses sometimes even against our wills, who predetermines us right so but this is what i would say every time god chose a person whether abraham or jacob over esau it was according to his election according to his will is that's why it says not of him who runs or who wills if that's the case he should not have chosen the nation called that would be called israel because they were one of the most rebellious ungrateful people in the entire world but he chose them. I think he should choose the older brother who is muscular, who is a manly man. He chose Jacob, the same guy who cheated his older brother of the blessings. Chose that guy. Just chose David, the last born of a line of warriors, a shepherd boy. When you see that, it helps you see, and, and all the women that were going to come in the lineage of Christ were people who were barren most the majority of them were barren and the point god was trying to make is is not of you who runs or who wills or are qualified it's me who shows mercy i will choose who i will choose for the glory of my name so that when it happens you will not say it's because this person was skilled or this person was super fertile and their fertility rate or something else you will see god's grace at work in the midst of broken crooked people that was the point so when he says I, I choose, and that that's a hyperbole and exaggeration when you say um, Esau I hated Jacob I loved. Clearly, when you read the story of Esau and the Edomites, which are the people that came from him, from Jacob, you know Israel came from Jacob. His name was changed. Esau had his people called Edomites, but God blessed Esau bountifully as an act of His love. So it was an exaggeration of God preferred Jacob to Esau not because. Of anything, even before they were born, a prophecy came: the older will serve the younger. It was said already. Do you understand? So, at the end of the day, when God selects or chooses a people, He does it with Christ in mind and salvation plan in mind. So, when God chooses, He doesn't choose. Hey, I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you to be saved. You are chosen because you believe in the chosen one, the elect of God who is Christ. So because you believe in him, you are also chosen. So I can give you a scenario. Imagine the chaplain in the school is at the chapel and he says, um, okay, 
uh, five those five people, three boys, three girls, you, 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 yes, you people, if you come to chapel I, and you enter chapel, I will give you um, five gifts, one each. That is the predestination the Calvinists portray, where it is unconditional election, irresistible grace. They have two, I, I can't explain it now, but like God handpicks who he wants to save. That's what they believe. But the biblical narrative that we see where Christ is a propitiation, not for us only, but for the whole world, says, look, anyone who comes to the chapel will get gifts. That is the election according to scriptures. But guess what? God chose the chaplain to bring that invitation so that everyone who comes to chapel will receive the gift. So the election was to the chapel, was through the chaplain and inviting everyone. So everyone who comes into the chapel is chosen, is elected. Does that make sense? So when you think of election, it is through Christ Jesus and all those who, according to his genealogy, made that to happen from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, like that, to Judah, from Judah downwards to uh, Obed to David, and all that will come because prophetically that was the lineage through which the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. So prophetically that had to happen and the Messiah came on the scene because he was the focus. It was never about the people. It was the person that would bring the invitation for all to be chosen. So that's the biblical way to look at Romans chapter 9. It's not handpicking. It is a, a global calling to where you will be picked. Do you get where? Being there means we are picked. I hope you get the picture. I personally get the picture. <laughs> like, I think the analogy of using this chaplain and everything just made me yeah. just it's like, it's yes, just, finally. Yeah. I have just like in order. Oh, oh, man of God is wise. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, yeah. So, um, Brianna, was that there? Are you good? Yes, yes, it makes a lot of sense now. All thank right, you so much, Thank you so much, Pastor That was so... Thank you. Good, thanks. Good, thanks. <laughs> All right, so we're going to Slido. And um, she has had a question here. said, was Acts 2 verses 4 an infilling of the Spirit or an indwelling? Acts, two, Acts chapter 2 verse 4. Pentecost, the upper room, right? Yes, okay. I believe so. Okay. But let me confirm in my Bible, Acts that's, 2, that's, 4. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Pastor Ken said that's it. That's when they were waiting in Jerusalem, 120 of them waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit. Um, at this point, while they had always believed in the Lord Jesus prior, this was a combination of two. And this is the, usually the only, um, and, and this is not uncommon. There are cases where in the same period where people receive the Lord, the Spirit indwells them, but they are also filled with the Spirit. Mm. And that manifests with speaking in tongues and prophecy. Do you understand? Where they, they are full of the Spirit, and so they pour out the Spirit out of their many flows. So um, that is the picture of both the indwelling and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But those um, who would come after them, there are cases where the indwelling happens, and then at a later time, there is an infilling based on their devotion, based on the things they do, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, things like that. But um, from that day, both happened. Mm. Both happened, yes. All right, thank you, PK. So the second question, also from Acts, is Acts 18, 25. 
This is from NF, Messi Akogu, and hoping you're online for a few. Alright. You asked me if my question was answered though. Oh, oh sorry. I'm so sorry. Sincere apologies, Chiazam. Was your question answered? No, it wasn't. Sorry. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay. So PK, please, uh just for clarity. Um on the I think I mentioned this to you, the verse that talks about receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus met them post his resurrection. What do you say? Yes, John. Yeah. Mm. So what, what what was happening there? I do believe what happened there was a prophet was a prophetic thing. It says, "Receive the spirit, and he breathed on them." Right. But it was a prophetic thing, I believe, because clearly he had not ascended. the The scriptures tell us that he said this to his disciples. When I go, I will send to you another comforter. And the advent of the Spirit was dependent upon his ascension. So the only way to interpret a scripture like that is to say that that was a prophetic preparation for what would actually happen when he breathes his Spirit upon them in that upper room. That's the only way to interpret that. Or else we're going to run into error of saying they've received the Holy Spirit before they had to receive the Holy Spirit again. The upper room, and that doesn't make logical scriptural sense. So, I do believe it was a prophetic preparation that he breathed upon them. I don't know whether he did take it, I don't know, <laughs> I really don't know, but it was a preparation for what will happen um, in the upper room. Before now, they've always had the spirits with them, right? And that's what he even said in those chapters. He said, You've had the spirit with you, but now will come a time where he will be in you. Mm. So this was the indwelling of the spirit that was going to happen. So it was not something that had happened before. This is a miracle called regeneration, where the spirit moves in, the study heart is taken, and the heart of flesh comes. A new spirit comes in, and you're regenerated, transformed. You have the life of Christ in your nature. All right. Thank you, Pastor Ken. Chesum, did that help? Um. Yeah, but I think I just need to review the... Uh, personally, just review the uh, prophecies of when the spirit was going to come, right? Whether it's meant to be post-resurrection or post-ascension, I'm not just convinced. Like no, you have to, you have to define what "come" means. Or like, when I mean indwell, indwell is I think I'm particular to the indwell parts, the indwelling. Very good. So you need to ask the question: Could anyone have the spirit of God indwell them before Jesus made that possible? And what are the implications of being able to have that before the death and resurrection of Jesus? Right? Does it mean the person was regenerated and was the temple of the Holy Ghost? Then why did they have the temple in Jerusalem during that time? So these are the questions you have to ask. Um, and then that will help you get this into your answer. But clearly the scriptures tell us, he said, when I go, I will send you another comforter. There's a sequence to it, right? Spirit of God has been with you, and now He will be in you. So you have to now find examples. If you believe that He did live and indwell people, you have to call names. Who did He indwell by reason of regeneration? He changed their nature to the nature of God and indwell them. So yeah. Okay, and uh, sorry, PK. I'm just trying to make sure I get it well. But as 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 at the as before the ascension, wasn't the work of 
wasn't like Christ's work complete? Wasn't he finished already? Because he had resurrected and what was required was like I thought it's when you believe you receive the spirit, right? So I'm just finding it hard to I I, I don't I'm just wondering how like how important the ascension was. Uh because like I don't see I just I'm not just con I'm not just I don't just have like things that help me see like the ascension was as so important. I know the resurrection was very required for like the completion of the work of salvation, right? But um the ascension, I just I don't know if I like when when that scripture says that when he goes, uh, uh, like how do I know it's the ascension? I know maybe like okay, well it's possible it's the ascension because at the resurrection he died. He was not necessarily going. He actually died. But yeah, I'm just I just don't I don't know if there's any other scripture to like buttress that it was uh then sure. that happened. Very good. So after his resurrection, he spent 40 days with them, more than 10 days, right? Um, there was no indication that lets us know that during this time, anyone had received the Spirit. Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does it say? You shall receive power to be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Comes on you, okay. To be my witnesses. Yes. Yeah. So he was preparing them for a time to come. There was nobody before these guys that had the experience they had in the upper room ever. It was yeah. a unique um, prophecy when it, when Joel said it, in those last days I will pour out my spirit. That's the reference Peter's made. Do you understand? There will be yeah. the upper room will come on everyone, not just people in ministerial offices. But also Ezekiel Butchers and said there'll be a time he will take away that stony heart. And put his spirit within. This were control. This is why they killed these guys. Because how would you open your mouth, Joel, to say God will put his spirit on house girl and house boy? How dare you? And woman, how dare you? How dare you say that the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel, will now come into a human being and live there and dwell in, in, in messy, frail human beings? How dare you? He killed these guys for that. Because it was, it was almost blasphemous. But the Lord spoke to them about what was going to come with us when the Lord not just resurrected, but when he sent the Spirit. So that's where you see the, the ministry of the Godhead to man in salvation. There's a protocol, there's a, a sequence we see that happened. And nobody before the upper room had that experience they had of regeneration until that time. That's why he told them, stay there, be together, pray. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I think the Acts eight one eight like really brought clarity for me. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Sorry again, Chesa. Well, I'm glad that you have your answer. All right. So I just saw that um, mercy isn't on the call. So, but then Daniel had a follow up to. Um, Brianna's question, but we'll take that when we come back to the chat. So just to be fair to Mercy, I would ask me she's back. So now I would go back to another question by Grace. She said, Sir, please, what's your take on people who say they've had conversations with men of God who have passed away in their dreams? 
they have conversations with, with late men of God. Okay. I mean, I, what do you want to know about that? <laughs> What's your take? It's, my take is that it's not impossible that those things happen. Now, there are extremes to it where people actually perform what is called necromancy, mm. which Saul, the former king of Israel, did. Called on someone, mm. literally, with the witch of Endor, and someone appeared. Literally. That was necromancy, right? But there is such a thing where because of God's idea of what you perceive as authority, mm. sometimes because of the instructions that will come, they need to come from a certain kind of person to make it easier. That's why, I, I mean, I've had people, even a few days ago, someone told me they had a dream and I gave an instruction. And the Lord never told me about any such thing. And I just discerned that because of the honor they have, um, God wants to pass across that message so that it comes off as serious. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, um, the reason why I believe Samuel heard the voice of the Lord and went to Eli is because I believe the Lord spoke as Eli. Mm-hmm. Like, it was distinguishable, it was familiar, it felt like something he would know. And that's why he went to meet Eli. Many times when the Lord speaks to us, he uses what is familiar to help us understand. Do you understand? So, Cases where people are seeing generals of the faith who have passed on, or even those who are still alive, many times it's because the instructions that are coming, um, especially if you honor these people, they are coming from a place of authority and they help you believe the instructions even more. That's why it happens. But when it becomes extreme and it's now like you're, you know, you're having dreams every day with this person, this person is now your mentor in the spirit. It's something else, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's because that's not that's not biblical. Mm. If anything, God has put physical alive ministry gifts over you for your discipleship. So when you're talking to people in the dream and you're conversing, you're saying, "Ah, I need to sleep. Why are you going to?" No, I have an appointment. Ah, <laughs> you will not sleep. So, so in those cases, that's where it's extreme, but it's not uncommon. That's what I'm trying to say. All right, thank you so much, Grace. Was that helpful? Was that helpful? If you have any such dreams, please let me know. <laughs> okay, Mercy is on Mixer, okay? Right. So I'll ask Mercy's question. But we answered it before, right? Was it another one? No, no, no. Mercy had a question. I was going to call my DCI here, but when you let me know, let us know. No, I, I wanted to go to and now say that he asked for clarity. Ah, okay, okay. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So, Grace. Um, please let us know that you're good. You can do the question. Um, while we're doing that, so Daniel had a follow-up question, which is the last question, saying about the romance line that Rihanna brought up. So, what of the had you of various hard parts? Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, I give more clarity to your question. I think I know what you mean. Okay. Well, if you want to do clarity, I know. I, it's kept my mind to mention because it's a whole. One thing. I'll summarize it. Count and lock. So, that means it. I think when you read the narrative in Exodus, it gives you clarity. First of all, not just, I think a lot of people focus on the power and majesty of God, which was on display clearly. Ten terrifying plagues. 
actually came. And there's some people who, when they talk about theodicy, it's another doctrine where God cannot kill. And God is all good and there's no evil, right? Some people say that he didn't cause those templates. And say, okay, so who is that powerful that caused them? They say it's just a consequence of sin. So the consequence of sin is now a force of its own. No, anyways, anyways, you have a lot to trash, right? But this this is clearly God's justice, not evil. His justice on a rebellious people to deliver those who are you know have cried out to him and fought. He needs an avenger, the actual first avenger ever. Yeah, we marvel at, at you know how he does it, right? Uh, <laughs> but this is the point. Um, how does how did Pharaoh harden his heart? Um, clearly, what happens is God is a perfect gentleman. When He gives us grace, Romans one tells us that. When these people were not repenting, they knew the right way, but they abandoned righteousness and they sought other things. They sought to have affections, same-sex attractions. They worshipped idols made in graven images. The Bible says he led them over to a reprobate heart. That is how God hardens a heart. He doesn't say, yeah, you want your heart to be hard, let me be strong. No, he gives you over to that. He's not going to persuade you because you don't want to be persuaded. It's free will. But when you see the plagues, not only should you see the power of God, but you should see the mercy of God. God didn't need 10 plagues to deliver his... Do you understand? He didn't need 10 plagues to deliver them. One is enough. So there were nine attempts, literally, for Pharaoh to repent. Nine attempts. Even just maybe the consideration that his people were suffering, he could have stopped. But his ego got in the way. The word Pharaoh means God of the earth. And so how can there be another God of this Moses who was my who was my junior when we were young? We used to play in the court. This was the younger Pharaoh, by the way. He replaces Ramses too. He, he was literally grew up in Moses. So Moses, how can you leave this place? I've known you all my life. You're coming with some other God that you say is bigger than me. How dare you? So understand that that mindset of Pharaoh and also understand the mindset of God. Okay. Look at how it is. He did think about it. He did it, um, you know, the plague happened. The magicians repl replicated, I think the first three or four times, they replicated the plagues until they say, ah, this one passed also. <laughs> so in that way, his heart was hardened even more. Uh-uh, you are doing this, we can do it too. You can do this, we can do it too. And then with all the nine attempts to show mercy, the last one came and that one struck the deal. That could have been the first and that could have been the final. But God in his mercy helped this guy, but he chose to have even after he let them go think about it, he ch he chased them. Chased after them. Do you realize that? He was not repentant even till the end. So guys, when we see that narrative, think of mercy. It's God that shows mercy. Even when he wants to show his justice, he meets and tempers justice and mercy. That was so, I mean, personally for me, I'm like, yes, finally, there's something I can say to people that just be headache. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> With the whole, oh, then why do you go hiding Pharaoh's hands? Yeah, I personally have clarity. But Daniel's hand is up. Daniel, please go ahead with your question or your comments. Thank you, Thank you so much, Vicky. That was really helpful. I really helped. But like, there's a particular verse that says, um, God, that God says to um, Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not listen to you. Like God telling Pharaoh 
I've been God telling Moses beforehand that this was what he will not listen to you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. I was saying he was basically telling Moses beforehand that Pharaoh would not listen to you, so this is what's going to happen, right? Yeah. But like, how does that verse fit in with? Very like, perfectly. said I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm like, ah. So, so, so how so do how do I reconcile you. that? Let me help you. So let me give you an example. In the case of Jonah, I believe God could easily have said the same thing. I will send you to this country. Think about it. I will send you to this country called Nineveh. Right? But you will not obey me and you will go to Tashish. And I will get a fish to transport you back to where you're supposed to go out of my mercy. I think I abandoned you. I think there is another prophet. Out of my mercy, I will transport you free of charge. And when you go there, these people, you know what, will believe and be saved. He could have told him that. Do you get? Because the Lord knows all things that will happen. He could have told him that. But look at what Jonah, in fact, Jonah already knew. Jonah yes, said, I, said, I, did, I didn't want to come here in the first place because I knew you were a good God and you will forgive these guys. And God knew that Jonah knew. <laughs> but Moses did not know what was going to happen. He was like, I don't know what to do. God had to show him signs, put his hand in his pocket. Um, there's leprosy, put it back, throw his rod. He had to show him things because he never knew. He didn't know who this God was. God had to introduce himself. I am the God of your of, of you know of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Do you get? So this is an introduction, and he said, Look, this is what is going to happen. Just in case you don't know. Um, this guy will not want to release your people. He already hardened his heart. And I will harden his heart because I will give plates um that probably his magicians can replicate um, because um, I'm going to show him mercy. Do you get? I'm going to help him, give him a chance. But from what I know, he's going to resist and I will harden his heart in the process. But one thing is for sure, I will deliver these people to your hands and you will lead them out. Does that make sense? So when he says he hardens hearts, don't just look at the narrative. Look, you have to interpret it from what is consistent. And in the New Testament, you see a case where God, in quotes, hardens a heart by giving them over to the desires they already had. God does not create evil desires because he's not capable to tempt, as James tells us. He doesn't tempt with evil. He cannot create evil in the person's heart. So when he hardens his, the person's heart, he's simply giving them over, even after several attempts of mercy. That's it. So don't just go to the narrative in Exodus. Look at the whole sum of scriptures and see how God interacts with people to get the full picture. I hope that helps you. Yes, sir. It, it really helps, sir. Thank you, sir. Right. Thank right. you, sir. Awesome. So we're going back to Slido. And all right. So these are two relationship questions I'll just mention. <laughs> Okay. As he says, I have an irrational fear, irrational feeling that being irrational or rational, irrational, irrational. Yes, okay. that being in a relationship, sorry, it's very will stress me. Almost feels like I might never be ready to commit to something so serious and wonderful. <laughs> Second question is, how do you anonymous? Get to, yes, two anonymous of questions. Course. 
how do you get over the fear of committing to a relationship? Like, why can't I just love a girl that loves me happy? Why is it so complicated? <laughs> so complicated. So the first one is an irrational fear to commit. Yes. Right. That, no, that relationship will be stressful. So. Irrational fear to commit to a relationship because it's stressful. I would rather not. Okay, and then the second one is what? That they would. How do they get over the fear of committing? Fear of committing. Yeah, like fear of committing. Uh, was that how it was? Yes. That's the second question. How do I get over the fear of committing to a relationship? Why is it so complicated? Okay, why? That's what I was looking for. Why is it so complicated? Okay. <laughs> First question is this: It's not a rash, an irrational fear. Because you already gave it a rational reason. You feel it is stressful and you feel like it is tiresome and it is a lot of work. So it's not irrational. It's coming from somewhere. Do you understand? It's irrational if you have everything it takes to be in a relationship and all the right factors are in place, but you're still very afraid. Even though you've not had hurts in the past, you've not had any bad examples within your space that have affected your thinking to get. That's where it's become irrational, you know, maybe it's a spiritual thing. But it's rational. You see it as stressful. Maybe you've had some experience with past relationships where it didn't work. Maybe you've not even had past relationships, but you had a situation where the energy was not reciprocal, the love was not reciprocal. So now you're afraid maybe this is what's going to happen again. I'm heartbroken, I don't want to come in again. But it's a lot of stress. I feel like it's going to take a lot of hard work keeping up conversations with someone that I like and the person likes me. It's just a lot of work. I have to be there, I have to be present, I have to say the nice things, I have to check in on them, I have to do all of this. And it's a lot. Yes, it is rational. But you now have to zoom in and say, okay, even if this is what relationships look like, if they are work, which they are, it's a lot of work. Um, am I willing to put in the work? That's the question you need to ask yourself. Am I in a place where I feel comfortable to put in the work? If not, then don't rush yourself. When the time is right for you to be able to put that energy and commit to someone, time will present itself. Um, I believe so, right? And maybe that you even have to help pave the way for that time to come when you want it to come. Not that you are now start to say look i want to start five companies in this time no relationship just settled for life my brother there's some things that are timed and time sensitive so um if it's stressful talk to someone why is it stressful what gives you stress is it just maybe emotional things gets you stressful you're not an emotional or romantic person right is that is that the case or it's stressful because you are extremely emotional and extremely romantic You've not just found anyone that matches the energy. So go to the root cause anonymous because if it's more specific, I'd have helped you more. But this is the best I can do. Come from to work your name with your name. It's like she's giving she's giving some titles with yes. gestures with yes. your full chest. Come from October Kiwani. Yes, please, please don't be shy. And then second part is that um, it feels like relationships are complicated. Yeah, so how to get the value of committing? Of committing, right? Because why is it complicated? Because human beings are complicated. We are very complicated people. Yeah. <laughs> so the fear to commit can identify where it's coming from. That's always the first thing. Be honest with yourself. Talk to someone who can guide you through it. Expose what those fears actually are. Because you can't be solving a problem you don't know. Mm. Identify the problem and then start to solve it, talk about it, do you understand? 
and then be sure and clear of what you actually want for a relationship and in your partner. Mm. When that happens, you're making it easier for yourself to identify the right person. So when you see those characters, you're like, oh, this is this is what I want. And you walk towards it, you shoot your shots, make it happen. Don't be anonymous. Come out and say it to your chest. Your foot chest, right to that ears. To be fair, um, I know societally speaking and even in terms of roles and responsibilities, it's expected that the man does the reaching out. But I believe women can do the same. And it's not in an aggressive way. Hey boy, hey boy, what's your name? No. And you know, say I love you, I've loved you before the foundations of the world, you're in trouble. You just need to be present, you need to be in view. Let him see. Start conversations, become friends. Like I said, if if comment if, section this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like this thing. Uh, before you commit to a relationship, build friendship. So if you are able, I mean, if you've ever started a friendship with someone before, you should be able to also initiate what could possibly become a relationship. Do you understand? So I'm saying that because, see, time is going. If you're always waiting around, hoping this person will see you, see, it will take a while. I can say this confidently. My wife, my oh, wife, no she, she knows the strategy I just said. Ah, she slide into our DMs. Let her show you Let some tips. show you the strategy. And, and to be fair, there was somebody else entering my eye at that time. Mm. Yes, there was someone entering my eye. Wow. And then she came on mm. the scene. Always wanted to check in on me. <laughs> you know if I have eaten. By the way, you know what that means. Have you eaten? Are you fine? Yeah, I saw it. It's almost the girl's name. You are wicked. But truly, shoot your shots. Just be there. Be available. And then when the person that was entering my eye, they used the door to wash my eye. And now saw Ruth clearly. Uh-uh, this is this is actually what happens. Do you understand? I want to check the comments. <laughs> because that's what you see. That's when people come alive. If we're talking about scripture, things. Hey. Mm. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure as we're doing Q&A. We're like this. <laughs> uh, that's it. Relationship. Relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but everything I've said is true. Oh, right? God. Identify your fears. Why do you not want to comment? Mm. And then start to define what you actually know. Mm. And what you actually want. I beg your pardon. In a partner and a relationship. And if it doesn't work for you, don't still bother about it. For example, let me just make it clear. If you feel like everybody's expectations is that you're going to have kids or you should have kids, if you truly believe from the Lord and within your spirit that you don't want to have children, I will not I, I want me, I want God babies that I want to play with. But if you are sure you don't want that, don't go and look for someone that wants children. Don't. Don't. Don't do that. Did you get? You, you, there's no way to work. I promise you. There's just no Unless the person just keep, keeps quiet and suffers in silence. Eventually it's come up, but I want a baby. Uh -huh. But we agreed. I thought. Mm -hmm. So don't go for what to stress you. Look for what you want in a partner. If you, are, if you feel like you'll never really be attracted to a certain kind of person, the person is short and light in complexion, and you want tall, dark, and handsome, you might struggle a lot. So be honest with yourself what you really want and commit. 
dealings you get. There are some non-negotiables, there are some negotiables, but and it's fine where the fear is coming from. Talk about it, address it, and then we find what you want. Right, yeah. right. That was so amazing. Just things down. Identify what the fear is. Even for the other person that said, yeah. person relationship looks like stress. What makes it look stressful? Identify that. Define what you want, and then shoot your shot. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take one live question. Um, if there's any question on Mixer, please. Um, if you have a question on Mixer, please kindly type your question in the comment section, in the chat section, so that we can pick your question. But yeah, those of us on Google Meet, if you have a question, please raise your hand up. Um, if I, if no hands are up, I'll just go back to silent. Yeah, let me just give like 30 seconds for anyone that has that question. So kindly raise your hands up. Okay, Udachuku's hand is up. All right. Please go ahead and ask your question. Uh, good evening. Um, can you hear me? Um, one Hello? Second. Yes, yes. Can hear you now. All right. Um, good evening. Um, so my question is concerning um, a particular verse in the Bible. And it's about, you know, the oddish reference to this fulfilled prophecy according to so 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 and so so there was this um prophecy um in matthew i was trying to look for the scripture quickly he referenced something about jesus coming out of egypt when god said i called my son out of egypt as when he was you know two years old and then i was wondering because i went to check that reference and yes, that particular passage I can't just remember in Old Testament is there. But the next verse says, My son or the person like God was calling did not answer. And then I began to wonder, okay, verse one says this. And according to Matthew, it is a prophecy about Jesus. But verse two of that, or the next verse after that prophecy, seems to suggest that Jesus is not supposed to answer God by coming out of Egypt. So I was just wondering how did this happen because i when i i just it made me have this little doubt because there's another part again matthew matthew seems to be this kind of guy that um he's always saying this will fill the prophecy this will fill the prophecy this will fill the prophecy and there was one that i used to hold on to a bit um somewhere about okay when jesus was healing multitudes of people and then he referenced isaiah 53 and said this fulfilled the prophecy that he bore sicknesses and disease which is another explanation that i've even got said when i came into the divine ministry that that part wasn't just referring to sicknesses and all that stuff but more about something referencing to salvation and the likes even which um peter quoted in his own scripture so when i saw this one and i had that small doubt about okay is this actually is this it was it a prophecy was it a prophecy or you know um, because the two things seem um similar in a way that we can say okay it, it might have been a prophecy because i don't know i i, I can't connect it that okay it's a prophecy or what how is it a prophecy that's what i want to understand okay <coughs> So very good question. It seems like you're very passionate about this question. Um, <laughs> but it's a very good question. Matthew is that book. Matthew is the book that 
um, because he's a person that pays attention to detail. For those of you who watch Chosen series, I think they try to portray him well in that way, where he's obsessive compulsive in the way to just be true to the details, the genealogy, the prophecies. So when he said that, this was in Matthew, I think Matthew, let me see if I'm not mistaken, it's in Matthew chapter 2, thereabouts, where it was happening, 2 or 3, maybe 2. And then he's referencing this prophecy from Hosea. Um, and Hosea, I think it's chapter 11, maybe it's chapter 6. Let me check. One second. Yeah, Hosea 11, verse 1. That's where it is. That's where, that's where it is. Okay, so, yeah. I, I mean, I did do some research on this because you're right when you say the picture in Hosea is, I've called my son out of Egypt, like Israel, right? I've called you. Let me even go to the exact scripture. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Matthew references the scripture. To be honest with you, when you compare a scripture like Isaiah chapter is it six nine or nine six, um, it's the only prophecy should be Isaiah chapter nine verse six. When you say a son to us, a child is born, a son is given. When you look at that compared to a scripture like this, that is more messianical. But when you look at this scripture in Hosea eleven, I think it's more of a pictorial reference. It's more of a pictorial prophecy because at the end of the day, out of Egypt, I'll call my son. And that is when the Messiah is being called. I mean, the time happening, there's Herod trying to kill these babies and kill the Messiah in the process. But they escaped to Egypt by a vision of the angel. And then after that persecution was done, they're to return back. You understand? So, but that, in in a sense, is it is a pictorial reference of what what happened, even with the Israelites. The context of Hosea is speaking is they were literally called out of Egypt, Jacob. They were brought out of captivity, but after that, they rebelled. They committed idolatry. They worshipped the golden calf. But I do believe that, just as they were called out of Egypt, the picture here is that the Messiah too be called out of Egypt um, in like manner, but also with the intent of delivery to bring the people together. And maybe, let me see if I can go to the exact scripture so you see the context. Matthew 2, 15, give me a second. All right, Matthew 2, 15. That night Joseph left for Egypt with um, child Mary's mother and the state of Herod's death. All right, this will feel what the Lord has spoken to the prophet. 
and called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized the boy's men had treated him so soldiers and the And then through the prophet Jeremiah, okay. So this is how you should see it. I do believe that what Matthew was trying to achieve by doing this was to show the similarities between the Messiah and God's chosen people and how he was the person who was going to ultimately deliver them, right? To be honest with you, I'm, I'm going to give you some more thoughts, but this is what I know for now. Um, when you look at what happened with them in Egypt when they were called out, that was a picture. In fact, the whole salvific story of the Israelites was a picture of what God was going to do for us in Christ. That you were enslaved to something for so long, and then you're finally brought out. You're going through a wilderness under the baptism of clouds by day, pillar of fire by night, and then you're finally brought to a place where it's called your promised land. So you get the place that was promised to you to settle. It's almost pictorial with Moses being the Messiah and even Joshua stepping up, where you get the word Yeshua, Savior. So that whole picture many times shows a salvific story. And I think Matthew, more than just saying a location of them taking um, you know, Jesus to Egypt and then bringing him out of Egypt again, it's just a link to show, I believe, that the Messiah will also call out of Egypt to return, just like people and um, Israelites the call out from Egypt, even though in their case they rebelled against God and Jehovah. I think it was just to link them analogically or pictorially versus um, a, a, an Isaiah 9 6 or an Isaiah, um, what's it called? Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's a different category of prophecy, although it does have messianic connotations. I also think that um, several times in scripture, God called Israel his son. Yeah. Because again, it's also like, a, like you said, a picture example of God's chosen people. God's chosen people are God's chosen. Yeah. As an in us now. So, yeah, um, Dr. does that help? Yeah, it does. It does. Thank you very much, Pastor Kenneth. Thank you. Thank you. So, now we're going back to. Slido! <laughs> That's a Slido! That's a Slido! Sorry. Huh? Sound like <laughs> I grew up listening. Okay, so I'm going to take um, Enya's question. She says, Acts 18 25, how can a person who did not know the baptism of the Spirit be described as fervent in spirit? This is that verse where you're talking about Apollo. Apollo, I'll be Apollos. Apollos. When I grew up, they told me Apollo was something else. <laughs> Apollos. So this is Acts 18. Yes, Acts 18, 25. 25. Okay, so how can someone who did not have the Spirit be favorite to Spirit? So, I mean, just like James chapter 5, which says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the word fervent means it's the Greek word zeo, which means to boil, or something that is aggravated, or energetic, or enthusiastic, or passionate, or impassioned. So this was a man who was eloquent in speech, but was enthusiastically 
eloquent in speech. He was a man fervent in spirit, you know, as you know, you're just fervent. When you say spirit, you know, it's always high spirited. You're not necessarily talking about their spirit state, talking about their attitude towards or something to anything, right? It was in high spirits, right? Just when you're fervent in spirits, you are in high spirits, you were aggravated, you were boiling with the way you presented what you knew. And Aquila and Priscilla saw this guy and said, No, bro. And just like many teachers out, out there, sadly, who are passionate but they lack content and they lack the truth. Okay, come, 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 come. Yeah, we follow you know, but come, come, come. But people like passionate, confident people. They says, No, let's give you better. He didn't just stop at the baptism of John. Baptism of John was only a preparation for the real thing, the real baptism. And I'll show you. So, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I was just say because that also even makes sense with the deacons that were chosen. Stephen, mm. Stephen, he will be a girl, he's kind of nasty, he's kind of nasty, Yeah, so I think that actually applies to them too. But uh, Mercy, and then, sorry, namesake, are you good? I feel like my outfit is incomplete. I'm supposed to be wearing like an orange something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, black and orange. Yeah. But it looks really good. Black and orange, black and orange, black and orange, black and orange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, was, yeah. <laughs> that was a quick break while we're waiting for Mercy's feedback. And Mercy, while we wait for feedback, we can still give it while we go back to the slide. Um, I would like to ask Chesan's question. She says, does music help prophets prophesy or assist in the flow of the prophetic? This is from 2 Kings 3.15. Yes, yes. Next. <laughs> no, but truly it does. It does actually do that. Um, in no, make no mistake, Music is a gift from God. And just like you can sing a song, I'm speaking from a human um, way. Have you, have you seen someone released, um, I beg your pardon, someone released music and people who, le who listen to it hear it and say, that thing touched me. Like it hit deep. Like you're singing my heart. Like someone can say those same words, but it does something when there's music. Have you noticed? Music has a penetrative effect. God designed it that way. And that's why many times, maybe you're in a meeting or a conference, it's when someone, when songs are being sung, that somehow you just see the manifestation of the Spirit happen very easily. It's a very quick way to connect hearts and connect to the Spirit very easily. So it says, um, Ephesians 5, 18, right? Don't be drunk with wine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I still know Bible. No, I'm drunk with wine. We're in, we're in excess, right? But... Feel the Holy Spirit doing what? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, yes, yes, you can be filled with the Spirit. Um, same way we saw the Levites, the priests, and, and the ministers of the Lord in the temple in song. And then the way the glory cloud was saturating the whole place. So, yeah, I do believe that. Nice. Thank you, Piki. Sorry, guys. I'm really enjoying this. My seat. I'm feeling very. I don't know. 
Alright, so cheers and please let us know if that's good. And Mercy says that yes, PK, I'll think yes, about it more. Okay. And thank you, PK. But yeah, while we're waiting for Chazam's feedback, we're taking one live question. Chazam says yes. All right, how are we on time? We're actually really good. Okay. We still have some questions, but okay. really good. Awesome. So live question, any takers? Anybody have a question? Okay, so whose hand is that? Chazam, we just took your slide of question. Oh my God! Everybody was putting up their hand now, so. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! Right on. Oh yeah! Right on. Quiet, ma. We see apologies. Okay. Thank you very much. So my question is this. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. Tapike, can you please explain the sins that lead to death and the sins that don't lead to death? From uh, 1 John 5, 16 to 17. <laughs> Just brought out the bazooka. Papa. Nice one, nice one. Okay, where's John, right? How did I explain it in the first John series? I'm going to try to remember. I'm trying to skip over it for sure. I think I gave three different possibilities of what it could be. First John 5. I don't think there's a completion. That's it, Jim. I'll check it again. Um, again, verse 1 again, was that? 16 to 17. Okay. Oh, she said this is such a mass question. Oh, this one. Oh. Oh, my God. Yes. Rightly divided the word of truth. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. And God will give the person life. But there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sin. Okay. Um, my current understanding of this, sorry, let me reduce this. My current understanding of the scripture, when you have, you have to define things. When you say someone is committing a sin unto death, there's so many ways to interpret this. Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Chapter what? No, it's not Second Timothy. Now it's First John. So she asked me two questions. This is the second one. Oh, it's two questions. No, 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 no. This speaking, what you're reading is correct. This is the reference. Okay, the first John is the correct reference. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, my current position on this when you say someone that commits a sin unto death i know some people have literally and in a very silly way said that it's those who commit murder all right those who sin unto death 
And some say, oh, even if it's not murder, it's hatred for someone. Because you hate, you know, John says the same thing, if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart already. But sin that leads on to death, and then this, John is saying, don't pray for those who are sinned unto death. What could possibly be a sin that leads to death? Are we talking physical death? Are we talking spiritual death? Are we talking eternal death? Those are the three types of death, right? Physical, spiritual, eternal. Like, what kind of sin is this? Is this person committing? Contextually speaking, because you see him many times exposing apostasy. He's talking against people who identify in the faith and walk out of the faith. And people who don't acknowledge from chapter one that they are in fellowship with the Lord, but they actually not in fellowship with the Lord. When you talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which there is no forgiveness, or a sin that leads unto death, many times you're talking about things that border reprobacy, right? Which we just talked about, reprobacy, people who are blatantly unrepentant about their belief, their unbelief. And, and then when, he, when you read the scripture, he goes on to say that those who are truly born of God do not make a practice of sinning because they are born of God. Right, let me read it out again. Chapter 5. We know that children of God do not make a practice of sinning. For God's son holds them securely and evil cannot touch them. Right? So that's it. Right? That's what we're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. So, but here, the question here is this, right? How does it apply to, because he starts by saying, if you see a fellow believer, you see a brother as King James, a brother sinning his sin that leads unto death. So that's why I give those perspectives. Some people believe that ah, it's uncharacteristic of a believer to behave this way, because if you're a brother or a believer, it's saved. And God's able, like that verse says, to keep you from falling in that regard. Right? So, and then why would John then say not to pray for someone who is sinned unto death? <laughs> right? No. It's not gelling. And sinning unto death couldn't really be that, that this is someone who is leading with hatred and that is committing murder. Uh, this is one of those scriptures um, of single mention. I'll be, I'll be honest, it's, in, it's a scripture of single mention. I mean, I can try as much as possible to give possibilities to what this is. Um, and sometimes tradition will have to come in, into play. By tradition, I mean what the fathers of the faith have always held to concerning this matter. What the church has generally in many ways been. If you come up with some interpretation that somehow church history has not come up with like you are the first inventor of this interpretation mm. then you cannot take it so but what i've seen historically speaking is people have likened this to blasphemy in spirit or a practice of unlovingness where you antagonize people um, with hatred and malice and that leads to death it's it's murder at heart basically um, these are the two possible things that could be but then there are more questions that will come up based on what interpretation you choose. So on this one, I can say that look, these are the 
only things I can come up with in terms of interpretation from the context of First John, um, unless there's any other opinion. I'm, I'm open to having a discussion about this one. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much for that display of wisdom. Um, cheers out, Sachi. Are we good? <laughs> no, I'm just saying because it makes sense to not want to expand on it because, again, law of single mention. Don't see this mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, Chaz, I'm sorry, I think you were saying something. Thank you, sir. Okay, so Answer is go listen to Better Way to Grow Up and the Better Way to Study Bible um, podcast. It will help you reach them. What's right. the second question? How do you advise a beginner to study the Bible? Yeah, beginner to study the Bible. Yeah, please, please do that. And, and then also check, I think, what, what Ranger, that's another teacher that will help you mm -hmm. in terms of hermeneutics. Right, it's very important. But let me just summarize. If you are bringing someone up to speed to help them understand their reality in Christ. It's not favorites, romance. You need to be very romantic. Second one is Ephesians. And then if you have some time, come Corinthians. Like dwell within the epistles. Oh, it'll bless you. If you want to then maybe talk more about the person of Christ, his deity, his life, ministry I recommend John right I recommend the book of John if you want to see more in the narrative style more detailed look um, it depends on your needs per time but I always recommend starting from Romans it's wholesome it's so from 1 to chapter 1 to 16 it's, it's just beautiful then go to Ephesians go to Colossians Philippians just explore Galatians Corinthians, explore the, the episodes that will be so helpful for you before you then start going to Old Testament books. Um, so you can, you can go to Old Testament books, but start with where the revelation is, which is in the episodes. Yeah. All right, thank you, PK. So since that was a two in one, I would like to ask another question, which I believe might help someone else here. Obviously, an anonymous question, because person says, How do you stop masturbating? How? And on the modes, how you cannot be you cannot be a slave to a master. Okay, I was trying to say, yeah, don't let masturbation master here. Anyways, how do you stop? Stop being anonymous. <laughs> that was a good answer. That's a very good answer, actually, that she said. Stop being anonymous. Um, and I know, I mean, there's stigma when it comes to sexual things. And the reason why there's stigma concerning sexual things, aside from the fact 
that sexual immorality is a sin against your own body, not just against God or man, but against your body. But it's linked with nakedness. And when man saw that they were naked, uncovered by the glory of God, which was all the covering they needed, they were ashamed. The sexuality linked to nakedness and the shame of it makes everything stigma, you know, full of stigma. But you need to come out clean and say, this is what I'm wrestling with. All right. And remember that the process to be free from an addiction um, is, is some, I mean, I've seen it happen time and time again where supernaturally the Lord frees a person and they're good to go. They've yeah. lost all desire for that thing. But sometimes some people have to go through the rigors of rehabilitation from that thing. And so the process might take longer than the average person. It varies. But can, is their freedom available? Absolutely. I know someone who conquered masturbation because they, they went the way of the monk, did meditation and purity. Manifest, manifesting your reality and all those new age um, metaphysical um, ideologies. So it's, it's, it is possible. And these people are people who have counted the years free, but there's better. There is help by the spirit. So be accountable. Come out of that shadow because sin thrives in secrecy. It grows very well in secrecy. It grows well in shame because shame will stop you from being accountable because we are afraid to, I feel embarrassed at this point I should be here and I feel like the people it affects the most is leaders especially spiritual leaders who are accountable to us who are holding other people accountable mm -hmm. see the journey of discipleship is one where everyone is climbing the ladder even the leader but as he's climbing the ladder, he's holding the other person down to keep climbing. No one has arrived. Paul said, I have not counted myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, I forget things and I press on. So we are all pressing. There's always motion. There are always places in your life that need work, that need to be pruned. But some people, they will never ever have a habit that is of a sexual nature. And those ones, oh, they're so lucky. My goodness. But you that have this problem, that's your cross today. That's your, it's, it's, the fact that you're struggling with it is a good sign. The world will not struggle with sin. They will receive an acceptance. The fact that you're struggling and striving is a sign of sanctification. So give it time. God is as patient with you as he'll ever be. He says, run this race. How? With patience. This race said for you. Run with patience. Right? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Don't run it feeling like it's just a day job. And that's it. Be patient. You will jump. It's a hurdle race. It's not a marathon. It's not a sprint race. It's a hurdle race. You might jump some hurdles. Sometimes you might fall. But the race is not over. You're not disqualified. You need to get back up and keep running. So to break free from this thing, it is very possible. But be accountable. Get a structure that helps you be free from this. That be wise as well. Flee all sexual um, immoralities. Don't be stay in public places. Don't always hide in your room and be idle. Go out, hang out with friends. Do you get be be out there and and then work on this. Let the scriptures dwell richly in you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let it bear fruit. Let it fight with the word of God.
And then the reason why I will not just say, okay, I remember someone gave an advice. If you find yourself in so much sexual temptation, just go and marry. <laughs> some, some, some of the problems might be helped. I mean, sometimes you are feeling those intensities, your body's telling you to settle down. But marriage does not cure addictions. It cannot cure addictions. The baggage you are carrying to that marriage will continue. But so you are now exposed sexually to want to find more expression. So deal with it before any of that, before it gets out of hand, and before it leads to the next level. Do you understand? Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. I just want to add one more thing that you've told us. Know your triggers, those things that. Oh, yeah. Like, then if it's one K drama scene like that. Yeah. Or if it's one. No, 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 exactly. Like, even K dramas, seemingly harmless as it might be, devil is a wicked devil. So, so he can recognize a lot of influences you might have, as innocent mm -hmm. as it might be. And just be, oh, a cute couple on their YouTube channel talking about their sex life and as a married couple. And that triggers you. Or you read a book, or you read an article, or you go on Twitter, or you go on Instagram. Just guard your heart, know your triggers, like, like MJ said. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. I'm really hoping that you're either listening or mixing or you're here. And that you reach out. Yeah. Google Meet, and would love for you to reach out. You can send us a mail at 356365 at gmail.com, and we'd love to help you. You can send a message to Pastor Kenneth and Pastor Chisum on Instagram. Pastor Kenneth is Kenneth Lusonia, Pastor Chisum is Chisum, or that's all Lusonia. And we definitely love to help you a bit more. You can also send us a message on Instagram, verify underscore ministry, and best believe that we would, we love you. We are people of love. We don't, we don't despise you. We don't say, oh, so I saw me sexual sin, I'm masturbating it out. So definitely not. The way God loves you is where we love you too. And we will definitely be here to help you on this journey. Right. Um so Yannis hands uh up, so I was coming back to the live. Um said like <laughs> down here, but I said like we have just one last question for us and that's nine thirty, like we started two minutes to nine thirty actually. <laughs> but then we started by nine thirty eight. I think um, we'll go for one more. Seven by seven thirty eight. Seven thirty eight, yeah. So we can pass. So Yannis question will be the last question. Your hands are up and I'm so so sorry. The most I can to take a question at October's Q and A, or you no, can. I'll be brief. <laughs> okay, so Jashuki, you go ahead after Yano. Yano, please ask your question. Thank you very much, and um, thank you so much, Kenny, for your very wonderful ways of of answering questions. Never gets old. Um, my question is is, is not a it's not a major question. It's just a follow up from the last from something that was said in answering the last question. So um, and that's the question about um, addiction, and then and the the question I wanted to ask was with regards to triggers, right? So I, I was going to ask is 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 there i believe there is but just to confirm is there a point where um in in a bid to identify your triggers and 
stay away from them is there a place of discipline such that if you find out that almost everything triggers you because you cannot you, you cannot run away from everything for example you 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 go out simply being outside either you just see one thing you are triggered or watching a movie you're triggered um watching a series you're triggered hearing a voice you're triggered watching a youtube video you're triggered so basically is there a point where <clears throat> yes you know your triggers quote and unquote is there a point where you have to build yourself in discipline not to uh be a be a slave to the triggers i don't know if you understand my question i do i do okay so this is this is what it is i'll use this picture i i spoke to someone yesterday with this exact illustration i think this is very helpful when you have a trigger think of triggers like thoughts today now mt has had about fifty thousand thoughts <laughs> Maybe that's even, probably even more saying. Right. This is how it works. Think of your mind like your bedroom in your house. But outside of your bedroom, you have the living space, right? Outside of the living space, you have the compound. Outside of the compound, you have the gate that protects. But you have traders. The traders approach your gates. Many times, you don't ask for visitors. And sometimes they show unannounced. And you don't want them to come in. Do you understand? And they're knocking, pressing the bell. Let me in, let me in. You acknowledge that they are there. But guess what? If you now say, oh, so that this person will not disturb, let me just indulge. Open the gate, they enter the compound. So that means you're now harboring the thoughts. It's taking this precious sweet time there. I say, you know what? Come inside the house. So coming into the house is you now making a decision with the thoughts you had. You have no control many times, although sometimes you can right, have some control. So I'll give you, a, let me just use a, a human example. Like the gates that came, you can't imagine you don't want any visitors. And MJ just comes, for example, and not only like, who is that? Why is this person here? You didn't control her, you didn't make her come to visit you. But you can control even the approach to your gate by putting some dogs, putting some barbed wires, so they don't even they, they get to the gate, but they cannot even to get have that access. So and that's where you can control the triggers. But the priority is making sure they don't enter that compound, enter the living space, and even more intimately your bedroom, deepest corners of your house, where decision now becomes action. So that is the mm. principle. Many times we are not immune to triggers. We are not immune to wrong negative thoughts. And that itself is not sin. And it's very important to make a difference. Having a wrong thought or a bad dream or a negative dream is not sin. Sin is sin when it becomes conceived, as James describes it, and it moves from just a thought to a yeah, sure. making a decision to act on the thoughts. Does that make sense? So.
and acting on the thought might not even just be doing the thought. Acting on the thought or yielding to the thought could be allowing the thought to stay, which has discarded it. So the action could be accommodating the thought longer than it should stay, or acting out whatever that action that thought is. Because Jesus tells us that even just imagine or looking lustfully at someone can be considered as sin to you get. So again, yeah. you cannot control who comes to you and not going to do it. But then again, you still can. You can put some measures in place to restrict or reduce how often people come. Do you understand? Yeah. And then when you mm. you make mm. make sure that no matter what they don't scale that fence of your gate, they don't pass that gate. <laughs> and then so that's where the work is. Even though the trigger comes, how do I make a practice of discarding? You can choose what stays, you can choose what you discard. How do I do that? And one way that helps is leave that business. Leave that area. Do you get it? Like if there's a trigger in your physically because it helps your mind also. Out of sight, out of mind. Do you understand? So those are practical ways of dealing with If it's that you're going outside, you can't help it. You see someone inappropriately dressed, you see it. You, you go to the gym innocently, and oh my goodness. We literally were just on our own, just gymming, you know, gymming neutral, gymming, but they were just trying to do hey. And then one auntie just, oh, <laughs> wonderful gender, just came, carried water bottle, dropped it. Found no other place in the gym except in front of this, my friend. What was she doing? She was doing squats. Interesting. Ha! <laughs> we moved though. It's 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 what we saw. It's of the devil. It's not what we saw, and I know what we saw. <laughs> so, uh, you move yourself from that situation. Help yourself. And then make sure that you put those guards. The more you develop that practice, the easier it will get. Yeah. The temptations will not stop. Mm-hmm. We came to your Lord Jesus from the start of his life to the end at Gethsemane. It will not stop. But you can control the triggers and even more so build a fortress that pushes them out with the word of God and accountability. I hope that helps. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you, PK. What is when those thoughts come, don't shake your head. Say it out loud. Oh yeah. My body is done for the Holy Spirit. I will not do this. Yeah. I will not. Just things like that. Is it scripture? Oh, All right. Um, Yano, you're muted. I guess you're really good. Thank you so much, Piki. That was so wise. Uh, so the yes. Thank you. Thank you, Piki. Your question. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Um, thank you very much, Pastor Kenneth, for you know giving permission to ask my question. So I'm going to try to be quick. Um, my question is based on something that was said during past night the full quarter of the um charge and in the course of when we were speaking i think you said something about or of course it's even in the bible in that first corinthians they saying that uh love keeps no records of wrong and then i i was trying to understand what that actually means love keeps no record of wrong and I, I, I know First Corinthians 13 seems to even be describing the kind of God kind of love, right? And I, I was like, okay, love keep no record of wrong. What does that mean? 
is it that the, the you don't remember what was done or if it's that case if it's i mean we can't delete things from our memories right then the next one is it that okay you remember but you decide not to act based on that wrong that was done to you and then you know you don't act on it so at least you're not keeping records and things like that you're not you're not telling things like that uh but when i now trace it back to god you you see places in the bible where god was remind, reminding the israelites of the wrong things they did to him and in fact not only that he reminded them there were times he actually punished them or i, I let me not use the word punish but because of their rebellion and their constant stuff that they were doing you know why the people were sent to exile you know all those things and when the the, the prophets like isaiah jeremiah or or some other ones we are saying oh this was the things you were doing and that's why you were sent god is warning you and then sometimes speak to the prophet and was like uh, i was telling you people this 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 but you did not listen and now this is what has happened to you because of this is this not a record or is this not uh, a record of wrong done to god and is reminding them and not only reminding them is even taking actions and that's it and what i'm asking this is not just about okay god but for us as as, as an individual how do we now go about okay love keeps no record of wrong because at least we can in retrospect see that god's action was complete everything he did was still full of love and we understand that god is very you know is perfect and all but we as individuals or we as uh, people in our various relationships we try to of course we don't want to react or keep records of wrong we don't want to do wrong back to anyone and then we are trying to in a, in a bit to do good we are trying to calculate okay how do i balance letting at least balance this wrong that this person have done to me learn from it react this way and then ensure that i'm not reacting based on this wrong that this person have done at least we know god is perfect but we as individuals we are not that perfect we are still growing and sometimes either on the left or on the right so what is how do we balance it and what is actually love keeps no record of wrong thank you very much thanks for keeping that short um <laughs> Thanks for the question. It's a very important question, actually. Um, so see it this way. You, you, you said something important that helps answer your question. It is when you say forgive and forget, to be very fair. Mm-hmm. I will say forgive and forget, which is not really in the Bible, actually. But forgive and forget, forgetting is, is not that you will never remember like somehow you hit shift to it on your system and then the file goes for your life. <laughs> no, if someone killed your mother, God forbid, and you eventually forgave the person, when you think about your mom, would you also remember who killed her? Yes, inevitably. So it's not that you just forget and God just refuses the door, spiritual detour wipes your mind. No. But Forgetting in that context or bearing a record of wrong would be not acting in response to how they acted mm. and also not defining them by their offense. Sometimes when you see people, you just define, oh, the fraud, oh, the thief, oh, the adulterer. And that is wrong. You're not supposed to define people by their wrongdoing. Of course, they made mistakes. 
but that after forgiving them, doesn't mean you will not wise up. Doesn't mean if you were defrauded, you now say, okay, let's go to a partnership again. No, but that you are not going to always linger that over them in terms of how your relationship is. It's a conscious decision to say, I forgive you and I'm going to let this one go. In the case of God and the Israelites and how he handled those situations, if you ever see God reminding the people of their sin or punishing them or meeting out justice, it's because they have not repented. The, the terms of their agreement and you can see it in Deuteronomy 28, right? Where Moses was reminding them. He said, you are blessed if you do this, right? You're blessed in the field, blessed this if you do this, obey the instructions of the Lord. If you do not, cursed are you in the field, cursed are you. It's clear. Those are the terms of the agreement, and they agreed. So if you are rebelling against God and you're not repentant, then there's no forgiveness. Even when it comes to salvation, if you don't repent, and then believe in the Lord. There's no forgiveness. And so that's why forgiveness, if then forgiveness happens, you have every legal right to to forego those things, especially even in the, in the court of court of law. Law of God, court of law. That's right. If if there is a penalty and it's been paid for, the bail has been done, that record is archived. No. We're not treating that any case that comes going to be treated in isolation so um, that's kind of how to see it you will remember mentally but spiritually you will choose not to remember that person by that offense you will choose to forgive like christ forgave and let it go be light don't hold on to things don't recall offense and say that's how last time you that's not the right attitude if you've truly forgiven let it go and act as if it never happened Basically, what God does for us, with us now, yes. because of Christ. Exactly. I will remember your sins and make it to Christ. Right. Yeah. Um, did you probably see your hand is dropped? Does that mean you're good? Yeah, thank you very, thank you very much, Pastor Kenneth. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Pastor Ken. I mean, this was such an amazing time for me. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.